Father, um, we just ask you would speak to us. You already have been, and, and we know that you are speaking, so give us the ears to hear, eyes to see, and maybe even most importantly, uh, a willingness to obey what you're saying by faith. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, thank you guys for reading the scripture and praying. And uh, If you have not been with us, we're in the middle of the book of Galatians. And so we're going to work our way through uh, chapter 3, verse 6 through 14 today. And I say this sometimes just to remind you, one of the reasons we like to teach through books of the Bible is because you get the continuity of the writer. And ultimately, God has written all scripture. He's the one who inspired the writing of all scripture. But he did use people just like us. Uh, to write these words down, and so they come with a particular flavor, a style, a personality, and even just depending on the context, uh, God uses, you know, his different authors uh, to, to write in such a way that, um, yeah, just stirs us in different ways, and, and it was obviously written to a particular place and a particular people, uh, and so we never want to jump over that to get to, like, our personal application of that, so we always want to take the time to think about that, and in this book of Galatians, we've been saying that, that God was writing this letter through Paul to the church at Galatia, and they were having some issues. Um, anybody in here ever have any issues? All of us, right? So they were having some issues, and, uh, and some of their issues were is that they had started their, their journey with God by faith in Jesus Christ because they heard about the cross and what Christ had done, and the Spirit moved them, and they received their salvation. But then as they went along, there were these Judaizers, these these, uh, these guys who were, were Jewish uh, in, in, in their, um, their background, and they were trying to tell these Gentile folks, uh, these Galatian people, that they needed to not only trust in Jesus, but they also needed to do the works of the, the law. They needed to do the works of these, um, one, being circumcision, and, and, and then follow the customs of the Jews. And so they were adding to the gospel, just put it that way. And Paul's pretty amped about that because he says you can't add to the gospel. Uh, Jesus is the only way to be justified before God. It's the only way to have right standing before God. It's the only way that we can be forgiven and the only way we can be rescued and redeemed and reconciled and all those words that we use to describe salvation. The only way is through the person and work of Jesus. And so in that, um, Paul is now rolling. And so the downside to us just taking these snippets each week is that if they were to actually, in, the, in, in their day, um, sort of unpack this, they would have been sort of in these little house churches, and they would have passed this letter from Paul around, and they would have read the letter in completion, like from start to finish, right, and talked about it and listened to it. And I'm not saying they wouldn't have had times they sort of pressed in, but they would have read this letter as a, as a whole thing, and, and there weren't verses and chapters in it, right? Those came a lot later. Um, and so we just take these sections of it, and so if you miss a week or if you haven't been here, like you might forget the context or the flow of thought that Paul's been in. So just a reminder that last week um, we said that Paul really <laughs> gets pretty, pretty angsty. And he says, you foolish, you foolish Galatians. I was telling our, our life group, I know kids in the room, you're not supposed to say this, so don't say this, all right? But one of the commentators says, the way that Paul writes it there, he's basically saying, you idiots, okay? No, kids don't say that today. You'll get in trouble. Uh, he's like, you idiots, you, you guys have, you started with Jesus, and now you're like trying to do it yourself. You started with the Spirit, and now you're trying to work at the flesh. 
and you, you were saved by faith, and now you want to go back to the law. You want to go by, back to trying hard enough to be good enough in your own selves. And so, literally, um, that is what Paul is addressing in the middle of this. And so, he's going to go to the jugular for these Judaizers because he goes straight to Abraham, who is the father of their nation. And every one of the Jews would have perked up when they heard the name Abraham, right? Because he is the father of their nation that, that, that all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, those of you the guys that know your Bibles or have read those stories, Genesis chapter 12, where God makes a covenant with Abraham. But the problem that the Galatian people had that Paul's addressing, this, this, this natural bent to move away from the gospel, is a problem that we all have in our own hearts, right? It's not just a problem that they had, it's a problem we have. And that's because imprinted in us from a time we're very young, or actually before we're born, is we like the independence from God. We want to be our own God. Now, this is interesting uh, when I think about instinctual things that we do, imprinted things that we do. Um, <clears throat> just follow me for a second. But my family, uh, I don't know how many of you guys are, are familiar with the Enneagram. Some of you think it's from Satan. I understand. Um, but Enneagram is a, it's a, it's this tool where we kind of study the, the, the personality of different types. So for those of you that are familiar with it, I'm a seven, okay? Um, that gets me in lots of trouble. Um, that means that we like adventure, we like excitement, we like to do all kinds of fun things. And, and so in all that, and already people in Enneagram, people are like evaluating me, right? And say, well, you're not this. You're not, I mean, I can already see your faces. Um, but here's the thing. Um, <clears throat> that means in our house that periodically we just do crazy things. Uh, like last week we got ducks. And... Um, Yes, some of you are like laughing. So, and that's Howard, um, in case you're wondering. That, that, that is Howard, and uh, How Howard is, is doing really well. Um, he's growing, and, uh, but we actually have five ducks. Not just one, we have five, because we have six kids, and all but one of our kids got a duck. So, uh, some of you have actually been to our house and seen them, so you know I'm not joking. Um, and the funniest thing happened this week, we were at the house, and the boys, it was, it was at night, and they were in the living room, and they were playing, and I'm sitting there, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to read my Bible or something serious, spiritual like that, and, um, and the boys come and run in, and, and these ducks don't stay outside. They've actually been inside our house. I know some of y'all, that, that's really scary, um, but the boys were running, and as they would run, the ducks would get in a little line and follow them and chase them. And we have a fireplace, and you can kind of go around and around. And so they would run around the fireplace, and the ducks were like, like just doing this thing, running around in the line behind them. And I, I'm, I'm sure if you've ever seen ducks, like in the park or, or other places, you know, like they just do that. And so they have that whole phrase, get your ducks in a row, like that's where it comes from, right? Like this is what they do. And, and they basically, when they don't have a mom, they, they imprint, they basically connect to, to whoever, you know, is nurturing them, and then that's now their figure that they're going to follow, and they just kind of get into a line and go. And I didn't really realize that. I didn't think they would do that with my kids, but now they're like running around our fireplace, these little, little, little ducks. And, and so it's, it's really been funny, but I was thinking about like how it's just like it's their, their nature. It's like what they are made to do. It's like the, how they were designed. They, it's by, God put that in them. And then he, it's, it's great of God to give us these pictures, these images, these, these uh, ways of, of seeing ourselves in his creation, right? and see in ways that we are. And so I would tell you that the line that we kind of get into is one of rebellion against God. That we are naturally imprinted in that way. Uh, that we naturally look at uh, the way that the world works and we think we know better than God. 
And you don't have to, like, teach people that. It's, it's in our nature, isn't it? In that flesh, that human nature. And we need rescued. We need helped. We need changed. And it's interesting that I, I actually did look this up and, and read about it because it is called imprinting. And it said whatever that they lock in on and then basically connect to, then that becomes what they follow in, in, in imprint, Right? And I was thinking about, again, how interesting that is because we, by nature, we, we, get, to, we get locked in on, right, uh, ourselves, on our own abilities, on our own capacities, on our own righteousness, on our own goodness. We get locked in and we get in this lockstep way of doing that. And what we have to do is we need a change. We need a transformation. We need a, we need a shift because if we're going to change that direction of self-salvation, then we need to look at the only one who is the true giver of salvation, and that's Jesus, and we need to be imprinted on him. And, it, and so now I'm preaching about ducks, right? But I'm not because I'm saying to us that we desperately need God's help to move away from what is very natural in our humanness. And that's a spiritual work. And we said that last week, that the Holy Spirit has to come into us. And in fact, the Holy Spirit does come into us and begins to change who we are from the inside out and helps us to see Christ more clearly. And the thing about this is that um, the gospel, I hope you know this, but the gospel, when you hear that word word gospel, and and one of the ways we always say is good news, but it is the story, right, of God. It is the way that God created the world that then we rebelled against God. But God, in his great mercy and his great grace toward us, he actually made a way through his son, Jesus Christ, for us to, to be restored to God, to be reconciled to God. And we know he did it through his death, his resurrection on our behalf. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But we desperately need that moment that that salvation to come in and to change us or we will just keep living for ourselves and living in our own ways and going the way of our flesh and so thankfully thankfully praise God thankfully we have the Holy Spirit but here's the thing once we actually come to faith in Christ we still tend to drift back every now and then right maybe more than every now and then for some we still tend to drift back into the old ways of the flesh and there's two two primary ways we rebel I hope by now most of you guys that have been with us, you're familiar with these ways, but one way that we rebel is just simply by saying, God, I'm going to do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. It's kind of the younger son in the prodigal son story, right? But the other way we rebel, and this one actually is actually, I think, more deadly, more dangerous, and maybe even more difficult to diagnose, is through empty religion. And it's where we say we're doing all these good things, all these godly, moral things, in order to earn our way or to make ourselves justifiable before God. I actually think that the older brother in that prodigal son's story, which was me most of my life, and it's still my greatest struggle, is to try to be righteous in and of myself and to feel entitled because if I do this right thing or this good thing, then I deserve God's love, his forgiveness, his grace. And that is not true. And so... I don't know where you are in that, but I do know that we all can struggle with one of those two ways, or maybe both, depending on where we are in our journey. So I uh, just briefly want to tell you, we're not going to cover a lot about Abraham in this passage, because as I was praying and reading, I felt like the Lord kind of gripped me with this idea of blessing and cursing. But it does start with Abraham, because he says, just as Abraham believed God, it was credited to him 
for righteousness. So one of the primary points that Paul keeps making is that we don't save ourselves through works, but we receive by faith the salvation that we have in Christ. And so, as I said, when they heard the name Abraham, they would have perked up. And many people, when they read the Old Testament, they think, oh, the people of the Old Testament, they were saved by the law. Now we're saved by grace through faith. But that's a misunderstanding, isn't it? Because actually, the Bible teaches us that even Abraham, who obviously preceded the law, and then Moses, who comes on later, and he talks about this in this passage later on, they were actually saved by faith. Right, that's right, faith. And he makes sure that that's clear. He says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Then understand that those who have faith are Abraham's sons. It doesn't say follow the law, but he says by faith. Now the scriptures saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles. That's anybody who's not a Christian. God would make them right by what? Faith, that's right. Same thing as Abraham, by faith, okay? And told the good news ahead of time to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. So, in a sense, that that is one way to articulate the gospel is that God made a promise to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and all the nations are going to be blessed through you, Abraham, including all the people who are not my people that are currently chosen uh, to, to represent me on the earth, like all of Abraham's family. So, he goes on to say, uh, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Now, I want to talk about that just for a second, because now he's talked about blessing, and he's talked about curse, cursing. Um, this is uh, a challenge for us when we think about blessing and cursing, because we probably have things attached to that, uh, what it means to bless somebody, what it means to curse somebody. But I want to just briefly... I mean, this is really brief. Remind you that when blessing and cursing were talked about in the Old Testament, and even when he's referring to it here, he's talking about the idea of relationship. And he's talking about the the commitment made in a relational covenant, right? And in this covenantal relationship, like, like God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to bless you. And what's interesting about the covenant God makes with Abraham is that he doesn't expect Abraham, right, to, to do anything he, other than just receive the, the blessing, that I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless the world through you. But this, relationship, this covenant was a relational one. And so to be blessed, if you just want to keep this real simple, means to be brought into relationship. And to be cursed means to be cut off from relationship. Are you still with me? It's real simple. Blessed means to be brought into relationship. Cursed means to be cut off from relationship. And that helps us kind of understand for the rest of this passage how this works because he's talking about blessing and cursing. Well, blessing means to be brought into the relationship with God, the creator God, the one who made the heavens and the earth by just speaking them into existence, the one who knows the number of hairs on your head, kids, adults, who knows everything about you, knows the thoughts that you think, knows every word that comes from your mouth, knows your motives, <laughs> knows everything about you. And he's, he brings us into relationship, right? But also there's a reality that the law and those who rely on the law are under a curse. That is, they are cut off. Now that's, that's a little bit interesting, but why is that? And we're going to get into this further as we work our way through Galatians, but here's, here's in, in essence, in a nutshell, and he says it in this passage. He says, 
because no one can be justified by the law. In fact, everyone who, who does not follow the law is cut off, is cursed. And so, in our lives, when we are born, because we are born rebels to the law, we are born uh, under the law, then we are actually born, I know this is going to be harsh for some, but we are actually born cursed. We're born cut off from God, disconnected from him, because in our flesh, we're born with this rebellious heart. We're born with saying no to God. Yesterday, I I sat in a a room as uh, Millie and Tim Wilson held their little baby boy that was born yesterday afternoon, and we prayed over him, and he's a beautiful little boy. And it's like, okay, this is a, you know, this is an amazing little, little baby. Uh, but in that baby is a nature that, is reject, that rejects God, rebels against God. And we pray that one day he will submit to God, and he will surrender to God, and he will receive the grace of God. But right, right now, as it stands, his nature, this hardwiring, his imprint is to reject God, right? And I have seen that in my own life, and I've seen that as we've raised six kids. And I love my kids. They're awesome, right? Just letting you all know. But we are hardwired for that, and so that is there. And the challenge is, is that in our flesh, we think that if we can just do enough good stuff, that we can fix the problem, that we can just work our way out of the hole that we've dug ourselves into, that we can jump across the chasm that lies between God's holiness and our unholiness. And the fact of the matter is, Scripture says consistently, time and time again, we cannot. In fact, it even says our righteous acts are filthy rags. I mean, that's pretty intense. But our best attempts are still not good enough. So to be cut off, if that's where we are, you know, what, what should we do? If that's where we are as humans apart from God, what should we do? Well, let me tell you what we shouldn't do. Try harder to fix it by just being good enough. And I would dare say that most of us have been down that path. I would say all of us in some form or fashion have tried to fix the gap, jump the chasm, do the good things for God in hopes that maybe, just maybe, we could get there. But here's the problem. The law is insufficient. And you guys know the law. I mean, I'm, I'm using the law a lot, but have you read the book of Exodus? Have you read Leviticus, <laughs> Numbers, Deuteronomy? Anybody read those? If you can make it through that, I mean, more power. You could deserve like a, a, an award, right? It's, it's very repetitive. There's ceremonial law. There's, there's these uh, covenantal laws. There's all these things that are going, that going on in, in it. And it's, it's really painful almost to read through it. But you read through it and you realize like this, this really high bar that, that's describing God's distinctiveness that he desires for his people. But it sets it really clear like this is what God expects. Right? This is right. This is wrong. This is how it works. And it is clear in Scripture that no one can keep the law completely perfectly without ever failing. Um, the way I think about the law is it's really good at describing the problem, but it cannot fix the problem. How many of you have ever had an x-ray? Yeah? So um, in our family, we've, 
for some reason, we like to get x-rays. Um, we just enjoy it. <laughs> and uh, not long ago, my wife was roller skating, some of y'all know, and she fell and broke her wrist, and it was pretty gnarly. And uh, that's the second broken wrist we've had in the last year, so, uh, but not hers, uh, the other one. Um, but that said, took her over to the emergency room and uh, actually met her there at the emergency room. Somebody else was kind of bring her there, and then we went in, and the first thing they want to do is, you know, hey, we got to get an x-ray of that thing. And put her up on the x-ray ma machine or put her arm up on there. That was, that was painful. Um, and take an x-ray, and sure enough, it's broken. Now, here's the thing. We could have x-rayed that thing 500 times, and it would have just kept saying the same thing. It's broken, it's broken, it's broken, it's broken. It would have not changed anything about the fact that it was broken. It would not have fixed the problem, right? It, it just revealed and showed that there is a broken bone. That's what the law does. It just reveals the problem. It doesn't fix the problem, right? As John Stott or John Calvin actually said, he said, the role of the law is to show us the disease in such a way that it shows us of no hope of cure. <laughs> no hope of cure. Whereas the role of the gospel, catch this, is to bring the remedy to those who are past hope. It, it is so important that we understand, that you and I both understand, we cannot fix the curse, being cut off from God, by trying to obey the law. Now, what hope do we have if we can't do it if we can't fix it if the law can't fix it then what hope do we have hopefully again if you're in christ you know this but we need to be preached to this over and over and over and over again right because it says in the passage what let's read it because it's, it's very very important to read but the law is not based on faith instead the one who does these things will live by them we'll talk more about that in the weeks to come and notice verse 13. This is so critical. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by what? Becoming a curse for us. Let me say that one more time. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. Now that if, that, if that doesn't just like stir your heart, like the, the perfect one, the one who kept the law perfectly, the one who least deserved cursing, not just was cursed, but what? Became a curse became a curse. Where else do we see that kind of language? And I'm going to come back to that word become. 2 Corinthians 5.21, anybody know that verse? It says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. To become sin for us. Not just to take on our sin, to become sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, what does this word become mean? Because this is very important. It doesn't mean that Jesus became a sinner. Just so you're clear, right? It doesn't mean that Jesus started, you know, lying and cheating and being angry and rude and, and, and basically becoming a sinner. 
But what he did is at the cross, when he went to the cross, he was cut off from the Father in that moment. He experienced hell. Because you know what hell is? And we tend to talk about hell as like it's a fire and brimstone. It's this lake. You know what hell is? Hell is the absence of God. It is, it is being disconnected from God who is good. Everything that is good, everything that is perfect, everything that is right. Let me tell you something right now. People in the world, they do not know what hell is. We say things like, man, life's really hard. It's hell right now. Let me tell you, you do not understand what hell is because we all live under common grace. Every single one of us live under the common grace of God where we still see the sunrise. We experience getting to eat and taste food. We get to experience goodness and grace. And I know, I know some of us, you know, it can be varied because some of us are suffering in different forms. But I'm telling you right now, can you imagine if the presence of God was removed from this earth? Just think about that for a second. What if everything good and beautiful and awesome and, and amazing was just removed? That's hell. I can't even, I can't fathom that. But in the moment that Jesus suffered on the cross, what he endured, when I understand the text, is that he, his connection to the Father, which was a perfect connection, in that moment was, was broken. The first and only time he ever experienced. You know, how did, how did Jesus address God when he comes on the scene? He called him what? Father. You know the only time that he did not call God Father? When he was on the cross, what did he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let that sink in for a second. In that moment, the relationship that he had had that was so dear to him, that he was so connected to his father, and in that moment, he felt the pain of separation. He became a curse. He became sin. For, for what purpose? For us. You remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? We're coming into Easter soon. And a lot of times we come around this time of year and we talk about the cross, the passion of the Christ. But you know what happened when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? It says that he was praying and then he sweat drops of blood. Like that he was going through such a physiological grief that literally blood was coming out of his pores. Why in the world, how in the world did he go to that place? Jonathan Edwards says it this way, Christ was going to be cast into a dreadful furnace of wrath, and it was not proper that he should plunge himself into it blindfolded, as not knowing how dreadful the furnace was. Therefore, that he might not do so, God first brought him and set him at the mouth of the furnace, that he might look in and stand and view its fierce and raging flames, and might see where he was going, and might voluntarily enter into it, and bear it for sinners as knowing what it was. This view Christ had in his agony. Then God brought the cup that he was to drink and set it before him that he might have the full view of it and see what it was before he took it and drank it. Do you hear what, what he's saying? Jesus knew what he was getting himself into. I don't know how many of you guys are reading through the Bible in 90 days with us. But 
this week we've been in, in the Gospels, and I was in Luke. And yesterday it struck me so profoundly. There's this moment where he goes to the Mount of Transfiguration, and Moses and Elijah are there with him. And I was just telling Jada, it stood out to me so strongly as he was there talking to Moses and Elijah, and it says that they were talking about what he was about to endure. Just think about that. Moses and Elijah are there. The glory of God is coming down. They're on this beautiful, amazing place, and they're having a conversation. It's almost like they're saying, Jesus, you can do this. You're getting ready to go through hell. You can do this. He was fully human, guys. He wasn't, he, he wasn't devoid of the emotions and the struggles and the pain and suffering. He took on flesh. He understood what he was about to go through. Anybody who thinks that this something happened to him that he didn't know about doesn't re, hasn't read the Bible. He knew what he was going to do, and he volunteered. He willingly did it. He even cried out in the garden, Lord, if there's any other way, let it pass from me. Let this cup, this suffering, pass from me. But he says what? But not my will, but your will, God. Guys, that was for us. Where Hebrews, he says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross to please his Father and to rescue sinners like you and me. He did it for us. Yesterday we were out with our family in um, West Austin, and, and uh, there's a tabernacle replica. Anybody been to a tabernacle replica before? Um, it's, it's out at Life Austin on the property there, and so we took the family, and we were walking around, and they put a little earpiece in, and we kind of go into the tabernacle and migrate around and, and listen to the different parts of the tabernacle. It's, it was a neat experience and encouraged just by some conversations we were having with the kids, and at one point, I mean, the, the climax of the whole thing is you, you go through the curtain and you get to the Holy of Holies. And what's in the Holy of Holies? The Ark of the Covenant. And there it is, and the little narrator is starting to tell us, it's this, this Jewish, this Messianic Jew narrator that's telling you about the, the Ark of the Covenant. And it just overwhelmed my soul. At one point, he said, you know, in the Ark were these different things that were to remind God's people of his faithfulness. And there was the staff that reminded God of, of his provision and protection. It was the manna, the provision. And uh, there was the law of God's truth and his, his, his moral code. And, it, and it, it really was bringing out, you know, the significance of these things that were there for the people to remember. But on the top, you know what the, the, the lid is called? It's called the mercy seat. And it has these four horns and these two angels on top of it. And they only entered this holy place once a year. Once a year. And they would take a lamb and all this preparation that had to be done before, you know, the, the, the guy could enter. And he goes into the place of the Holy of Holies and he puts blood on the horns and he puts blood on the mercy seat. And it's there at that place that it signified God's forgiveness of sin for all of the tribe, for all the people, Right? And what really stood out to me is, is where God met his people was not at the law inside the box, but is on the mercy seat, at the top of the box. It's just a box, but symbolically, 
that God doesn't meet us at the law. He meets us at mercy. Because that's our God. His character is not one to just smack us around, but to bring us in. Not to curse us and cut us off, but to adopt us as his kids. That's our God. That's our Father in heaven who's worthy of it all. John Stott says it this way, God's purpose of love was to save sinners and to save them righteously. But this would be impossible without the sin-bearing death of the Savior. Catch this. The gospel is not good advice to men, but good news about Christ. Not an invitation to us to do anything, but a declaration of what God has done. Not a demand, but an offer. What a God we serve. What a gracious, merciful God. Last night before bed, I was meditating on, and I don't always do this, so I'm not, I'm not that holy. I was meditating on Hebrews chapter 10. And I was telling Jada, she was getting ready for bed, and just I was sitting there, and I was just, my soul was just overcome with, with thankfulness. Hebrews chapter 10, I just want to read it to you. Since the law has only a shadow of good things to come, and not the actual form of those realities, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. That's the old system. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers once purified would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, this is Jesus. He said, you did not want sacrifice and offering, but what? But you prepared a body for me. I don't know. When I read that last night, it just, it just, oh, it's like an arrow to the heart in a good way. You did not want sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for the Son of God. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. And then I said, see, it is written about me in the volume of the scroll. I have come to do your will, God. I've come to meet people at the place of mercy and not the law. I have come to let my body be broken so that people can be brought in and blessed. And I just, I'm just praying that by the Holy Spirit, somehow he would make that fresh for you. Because I think for Christians, we're just pretty flippant with that reality, to be honest. And I'm right there with you. This is not, I mean, if you, if you don't know Jesus, my prayer is that you would see how beautiful he is in this. But if you know Jesus, I pray that you would be reawakened to the reality of what he has done for you because it is the only thing that's going to motivate us to live a life worthy of him. He is a merciful God. He is a gracious God. He became a curse. He became sin for us so that in him, what? We might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Here's what's beautiful. We, 
sit here today able to worship God, to sing songs, to, to, to talk with each other, to, to experience his spirit. Did you notice the last thing he said in that passage? He says, the purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive, what? The promised spirit through faith, the presence of God with us. That's the blessing of God. The blessing of God is not that we get wealthy and drive fancy cars and have nice houses and even have good health. The blessing of God is that we get God. We get God. We get the king of the world in us, working in us, providing the peace and the joy and the hope and the life that we long for. We get God, and we are a blessed people, blessed beyond what we deserve. Here's my question. Have you been living your life trying to meet God at the law? Are you meeting him in his mercy, his mercy seat? And I think you can tell pretty quickly because it's what happens when you sin that reveals what you really believe about God. When you sin, do you go to God or do you run away from God? I've noticed that some people, when they screw up, they blow it, they miss church for a few weeks. It's like, I'm not getting near that. Too guilty. Not going to be around community. And the enemy loves it. He just isolates, cuts us off. We're struggling. Here's the beauty. He says, I love it when you come to me and you're struggling and you're just honest. You're real. I see you as righteous. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done for you. Come to me. When you struggle with sin, difficulty, and trial, do you try to just, man, I'm going to do a better job. I'm going to make up for it. Be free from that false gospel today. That's not how it gets fixed. Right? That's not how it gets fixed. We are blessed people in Christ. Father, I just uh, pray that in this moment, this time, God, that you would enable us to have a fresh and clear revelation of your love for us. God, at the root of our struggle in this life, the root of our discontentment, the root of our anger, our bitterness, the root of our jealousy, the root of our rudeness, God, the root of all these fleshly things, these behaviors, is, is a, a small view an incomplete view of what you've done. And so I pray that you would give us a fresh view of you today. That Jesus, you willingly became a curse. You became sin. And that you took on that moment 
the pain, the suffering, the heartache that rightfully we deserve. And so, as your son today, God, I just simply say, I receive by faith that truth. And I pray every person in this room can, by faith, receive that gift. Maybe some for the very first time. At our life group on Wednesday night, we just stopped and took some time just to listen and ask the Lord to speak to us. And almost instantly after I I closed my eyes and just said, God, what do you have to say to me? I felt like the Lord was saying, stop your striving. Like just as clear as day, stop your striving. Followed up with, I love you. And some of you today, you just need to stop your striving. Maybe some of you are like me in that. Just trying to to default back to that law. To do it in a good enough way to hopefully get God's approval. And we just, we receive it by faith. Just like Abraham received the blessing and the covenant of God by faith. He received that by faith. Today, we just need to receive that by faith. To call on the name of Jesus and say, you're enough, Jesus. I receive what you did for me that I couldn't do for myself. As we respond, um, we're going to invite you to pray. We're going to invite you to...
Thank you.